What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the program. It is episode 242 of Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Hayden. As always, you can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And you can follow our social pages on Twitter and Facebook for the latest updates. Uh, great to be back with you folks. Uh, kind of took a little bit of a detour with the program last week. Was not uh, necessarily feeling uh, 100% uh, almost the entire week. Um, but good to do guest Friday last week. Um, it was actually released on the weekend. Did an episode with Mike Craddy. If uh, you folks still want to check that out, did kind of a Bruins uh, playoff preview, if you will. Um, but great to be back with you folks this week. I got a Celtics-themed guest this week uh, to kind of talk about the uh, early part of the Celtics-Hawks series. Uh, Celtics-Hawks obviously play uh, Game 2 later tonight, uh, so we'll have a preview of that game. Obviously, we're going to get to the Bruins, uh, some Red Sox stuff, a little Patriots, uh, some Revolution, um, then obviously playoff updates for uh, both the NBA and the NHL. Um, so I think we're going to get going, talk a little uh, Bruins uh, as they opened their first round playoff series with the Florida Panthers last night. Uh, Bruins get the win 3-1. to one. I think a pretty solid effort uh, for this team, um, I will say, just from the jump. I think, you know, watching this game start to finish, I think that there were certainly ebbs and flows to the game, and I think, you know, yes, this is a battle-tested playoff team. You know, you have the core group of guys that have been together through multiple, you know, Stanley Cup final runs, and, you know, I think that even with that, you're still going to have nerves in playoff games, and I think, you know, if the Bruins maybe were not necessarily at their best, you know, I'm wondering if you know, with that, that bug going through the Bruins' room, as we, you know, heard about the last couple of days, you know, could that have had something to do with parts of the game yesterday? You know, it wasn't that they played badly or anything, but I think it just was interesting that, you know, Florida, for the majority of that game, outshot them, you know, and kind of seemed to be more of the aggressive team. You know, it was huge. The Bruins could get, you know, a lead in that first period, you know, get a power play goal on their second opportunity, you know, and then take the, you know, take the 2 nothing lead and kind of never really seemed that they were threatened in this game. You know, Olmark obviously made some big saves. Um, you know, I think early on he, I don't know if he, like, looked himself. You know, I think that he was, it was reported that he was, I believe one of the players that was not uh, like feeling the best and was kind of a game time decision, um, but you know ended up making twenty nine, uh, no thirty, sorry thirty one saves. Sorry, I counted something wrong. Yeah, thirty one saves. Um, but I think that you know he kind of was. I don't want to say shaky. You know, it's not. That's not the right word, but it just seemed like, you know, some of the rebound control wasn't, you know, where it usually is. You know, pucks were popping out of his glove. You know, he wasn't able to grab some loose pucks and things like that, but clearly, you know, made the big saves when it was huge or when it was important, made the, 
made the huge saves when it was important. You know, I think particularly that uh, Brandon Montour chance in the third period. Um, you know, I think that was, I want to say that that may have been before, or I can't remember what point in the game, but it was relatively late in the game. It was within the last, you know, six or seven minutes, and he made a huge save there. Uh, there were some other saves that he made that were huge. So, you know, I think that he kind of, both he and the Bruins kind of eased into the game. You know, Bruins obviously found some big goals at big times. You know, I think in particular the DeBrus goal at the end of the second period, you know, digging for that loose puck. You know, that was a huge goal, you know, giving the Bruins a, a two-goal advantage that they ultimately held on to. So, you know, I think it's a good start. You know, I think you always want to win that first game. You know, when you're at home, you have the home ice. You always want to be able to win that first game. And I think it's a good stepping stone because I think it gives some of these guys a win under their belts. You know, some of these guys, you know, played, were playing their first playoff games or, you know, playing with the Bruins for the first time in the playoffs. So it was like, I think a lot of guys kind of feeling feeling the game out a little bit. And I think the Bruins did a good job of, you know, easing into the game. You know, I think to Florida's credit, they're a team that plays really aggressively, you know, really hard hockey. And I think it makes it challenging when, you know, the Bruins are somewhat careless with the puck, you know, which has kind of been a little bit of an underlying issue at times this season. You know, I think it's really hard to, you know, look at a team that won 65 games out of 82 and be like, oh, okay, you know, here are issues. But, you know, they can sometimes be loose with the puck. And I think you kind of saw that at times last night. But I think, you know, could be that some of it was due to not having Bergeron available. Um, but I think, you know, knowing that they have, you know, Allmark back there that can you know, bail them out and make big saves, you know, is, is huge. And I think it's good, you know, confidence-wise and, you know, not knowing like, oh, okay, we can turn the puck over. But it's like, if you do make mistakes, he oftentimes will make the save, you know. And I think you still want to be careful with Florida because they're a team that they like to play up and up and quickly in transition, you know, like to... like to, you know, force turnovers, take it the other way and score goals. And I think, you know, that's the way that they're going to try to play. And I think the Bruins need to be, you know, smart with the decision-making. You know, I think mistakes are going to happen. You know, and you saw that with uh, Kachuk's goal in the second period last night, you know, kind of a big misplay by Orlov. But I think if you can keep those to a minimum, you know, this is a team that you should beat relatively easily you know I think five games is reasonable to expect that they can beat this team but I think you know it's just continuing to do the right things and you know capitalizing on your chances and not giving Florida too many chances on you know unforced errors so you know I think one of the other things that I think is important for the Bruins in particular you know is Jake DeBrusque and 
I think it's always someone that when he's scoring and when he's putting pucks in the net, you know, his confidence is really at an all-time high. And I think that's huge for them because I think, you know, having someone like that in addition to, you know, your Pasternak's, your, you know, Zaka's, your Bertuzzi's, your guys that you can rely upon to score goals, you know, he's another guy that you can rely upon. And I think really, you know, has that, you know, engagement in his game that I think it's that consistency that you've seen from him almost every single night that he's played this season. I know he hasn't been available all season, you know, had that injury, but I think he's a guy that you can notice that that you notice is engaged every night. You know, he's not someone that is going to take, I don't want to say take games off, not trying to say that in a negative way, but I felt like at times over the last couple of years, you wouldn't see him noticeably for a couple of games, you know, and I think that now it's like, not only is he scoring goals, but he's also doing things that are important to winning hockey games. And I think, you know, just the, the energy and the willingness to, you know, dig for a loose puck like he did last night, you know, is telling me that he's a player that's really fully engaged in what they're doing. So it was good to see him get a goal. You know, I think good for Pasternak to get a goal, good for this team to get a power play goal. You know, in the first period, I was kind of concerned about the Bruins not scoring on that first power play. You know, there's something about the early power plays that it kind of is a bit of a pressure point, I think, at times where it's like you immediately start a game and then you're like, oh, we're on the power play. So it was good the Bruins could capitalize um, on that second power play with Bertuzzi making a great pass uh, to Pasternak. I think, you know, this is just certainly it's a team that the Bruins are, are good enough to beat, but I think they do just have to be smart with, with all the things that they do and, you know, limit the turnovers, limit the speed that Florida can gather in the neutral zone. You know, I think really doing a good job of kind of defending the, the front of the net, which, you know, Florida and, Florida and Matt Kachuk are going to try to do that every every minute of every game. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a good start for this team, but I think it's not necessarily where they want to be but I do think that you know there's some guys that are kicking some rust off you know I think particularly Forbert and Felino that were in the lineup last night for the first time in weeks um, that I think you know you hope those guys can kind of kick the rust off you know you're hoping that the guys in the room start to feel better from the illness you know, that could have had something to do with maybe why they didn't look their absolute best. Maybe in the first two periods last night, they started to figure it out in the third period. But, you know, I think the illness is certainly something to monitor. But I do think that, you know, it's an illness, so it'll pass. You know, so you hope that Bergeron can be available uh, to play tomorrow night. You know, it'll be interesting to see. But you know, even if he doesn't, I think this team is fully capable, you know, of winning games without him. But I don't think that, you know, I can't see him missing more than one more game 
you know, you got to think even if he doesn't play game two, that he certainly plays game three. So, you know, you're hoping that that, you know, illness is kind of toward the end of working its way through the locker room, but, you know, you never know. So it'd be interesting to see, but, you know, good start for the Bruins game two tomorrow night, 7.30 at the Garden. So, you know, probably Olmark you see again, you know, Mike Rowdy and I talked about it over the weekend about kind of the, the goaltending thing. And I do think that you probably continue to see Olmark for most of the postseason, you know, and Swayman's just kind of there, break glass in case of emergency type of thing. You know, if there's, you know, you know, an injury or something else happens, you know, but I do think that Olmark's going to be the guy that's going to be your guy, you know, for the majority of the playoffs. So obviously game two tomorrow, 7.30, hopefully the Bruins can, you know, continue some of the good things they did last night, you know, take a series lead and go into Florida, you know, where there's probably going to be uh, quite a few Bruins fans waiting for them when they get down there on Friday. So, you know, you just hope that the good habits continue in game two. You don't give Florida any reason to think that they can win this series. You know, I think game two, you want to, you know, come in, reestablish what you did well in game one and, you know, kind of hope for the best. Um, I did think, I did think Alex Lyon for the Panthers last night did play a really good game. You know, I think honestly, there were some huge saves he made in that game. And I think kind of lucky this game wasn't four to one, you know, five to one. The Bruins had a lot of huge chances. So, you know, I'm curious to see what happens game two. You know, I think you continue to, you know, do your best to get to inside ice, continue to kind of get those high quality chances and, you know, hope you can score some more. You know, I think that you hope that the Bruins don't run into a, a game where a goalie stands on their head, but I think this is always a team that has confidence that the next shot will go in. So I think, you know, as much as there absolutely are going to be chances this postseason where, you know, a goalie just out of nowhere pulls off a crazy performance, but I think this is a Bruins team that will not get discouraged about stuff like that. So, you know, I think they're pretty well equipped to handle a game like that, but I think You just got to hope that you can, you know, capitalize on the chances that you do get because, you know, they had a lot of them last night. It wasn't that they came back to, to bite them or anything, but I do think that you don't want to have any reason that you give Florida or their goaltender any, any hope or any reason to, you know, feel good about that. So uh, Bruins 3-1 win, game one, game two tomorrow night, so... I think that is going to do it for the Bruins. No real lineup things last night. You know, it was good to see that uh, Felino was back in the lineup. Um, good to see him in. You know, Forward was in, which, you know, I think I don't know about that choice 
Um, you know, I kind of would have liked to see Grizzlick last night, but, you know, I think trying to keep your options open is important. But on the other hood, but, you know, also, Forbert and Felino have not played in a game in months or weeks. And so, you know, getting them into games, I think, is important so that they're not ice cold. But I think, you know, Grizzlick, I think, to me, is a little bit more valuable on the ice than Forbert is. You know, Forbert obviously is great killing penalties, but, you know, Grizzlick, I think, is huge for their kind of transition game. And I was thinking that, you know, Florida would be a team that he would be in the lineup for, but could just be that the Bruins are trying to get forward into the lineup, make sure he can get into some games. But, you know, clearly you could see some rust on he and Felino's games, but you hope that that's just a matter of getting them into more games. So it'd be interesting to see if Bergeron returns. Game two, what do those lines look like? Does Bertuzzi get dropped down to the third line? You know, does Zaka, does Zaka maybe get dropped down? It'd be interesting uh, to see what happens. So, yes, we are going to finally move on. Sorry, I had some thoughts after I said we were going to move on. but We are going to move on. We're going to talk a little bit about the Celtics, who will take on the Hawks in game two of the first round series tomorrow, tonight, excuse me. Um, so Celtics obviously winning the first game on Sunday, or Saturday, excuse me, 112-99, the final score there. So, you know, clearly this was, hey, first half game. You know, the Celtics raced out to a 30-point lead in the first half, uh, scored 74 points. You know, yes, the Hawks did make a little bit of a run in the second half, but, you know, kind of seemed like it was just a natural, you know, 30-point lead. We kind of lose some of it, but I think they were just tremendous in the first half, you know, offensively doing whatever it was they wanted, you know, getting to the rim, shooting threes. I did think that, the emphasis early in the game of getting to the basket was really good to see because I think oftentimes this season the Celtics can, you know, fall into the trap of shooting too many threes. You know, they do such a great job of creating movement and creating open shots that oftentimes it seems like they're creating so many open threes that that's all they're taking. But I think the fact that they were able to make an emphasis of, okay, we're going to drive the ball today. We're going to take it to the basket. And it just was great to see Tatum and Brown do that early, early in a game to kind of set the tone. So very impressed with that perspective um, or, or that part of the game where the Celtics just making an emphasis to take it inside. And I think you hope that that's something the Celtics can continue to do because Atlanta is not really necessarily the best defensive team. And I feel like the Celtics are a team that if they put their minds to it and are very kind of, you know, set in what they're going to do offensively, it's very hard to stop them. And so I think continuing to just do that and, 
you know, pound the paint and take it to the basket layups and second chance points and things like that. Because while yes, you know, Capella, I think is a decent defensive player is a bit kind of, you know, can be a big presence in the paint. The Celtics just have to attack because, you know, as good as Trey Young and DeJounte Murray are offensively, the Celtics really should be able to do whatever they want with this Hawks team uh, defensively. So I think for game two, it's just continuing to do the same things, you know, attacking the basket and making an emphasis of scoring the ball in the paint. Um, so I think another thing I was impressed with um, is Derek White and, you know, feel like I've been talking about him all season, just how important he's been to this team's success. But it just is so interesting to think about a year ago that the Celtics, you know, brought in Derek White from San Antonio and, you know, kind of weren't sure about the type of game that he was going to play, you know, and I think that his role wasn't as defined. And now that it's defined, you know, as being in the starting lineup, that he's a guy that they look to to, you know, initiate offense, you know, he's so much more comfortable um, in what he's doing now. You know, 24 points, seven assists, five rebounds in Saturday's game. You rarely saw games like that last season. And I think it just goes to show you how much more confident he is in his offensive game. And it's just one of those things that makes this team so dangerous in the postseason that, yes, you have Brown. Yes, you have Tatum. You know what you're going to get from those guys. But the fact that you can start someone like Derek White and he can kind of be that, you know, third scorer, if you will, in the starting lineup. And then you can bring Brogdon off the bench. You can bring Hauser off the bench. You can bring Rob Williams off the bench, who is really good on Saturday. You know, it just it makes your team that much more dangerous. And I think, you know, it's just a... It's something that can, can can become, I think, overwhelming for most teams that the Celtics can roll out, you know, a starting lineup of Tatum, Brown, White, Smart, now Horford, you know, and be pretty comfortable with those guys playing a lot of minutes and then, you know, getting your bench guys into some games, you know, and I think it's interesting to see that, you know, Brogdon didn't honestly play that well on Saturday, but... You know, Derek White did a great job of picking up some of that slack. And, you know, Rob Williams scoring on the interior is huge, too. And I think the Celtics need to continue to attack the basket, get easy baskets, because, you know, if this is a Hawks team defensively that doesn't always play, it doesn't always play defense with a lot of resistance. So, you know, you want the Celtics to continue to attack, continue to do the things that, you know, they're good at, and I think, I will say that, yes, it was a, you know, dominant first half against the Hawks for a couple reasons. For The first reason was, you know, the Celtics were making everything, you know, knocking down a lot of shots, taking it inside, but, you know, the Hawks also missed a lot of shots. You know, they only made five three-pointers the entire game. You know, Derek White made four three-pointers in the game for the Celtics on Saturday. So I think 
you don't want to expect that the Hawks are going to shoot that poorly again. You know, Murray and Young were one for 11 shooting threes. You know, Bogdanovich was two for seven off the bench. I don't think that that's something that you're going to expect the rest of the series. You know, I think the Hawks were missing a lot of shots. You know, Trey Young missed a lot of easy looks in that game. So I think that you have to expect that they're going to score the ball a little bit more consistently in game two. So I think, you know, the Celtics need to still have that good defensive focus um, and intensity. But I do think the Hawks will shoot better tonight. Um, and it's going to be a matter of, you know, can the Celtics continue to maintain a good, aggressive, attacking mindset on offense? Because I think if they're playing with that mentality, there are, you know, I, do, I don't know if there's a team in the NBA that can beat them if the Celtics are playing with that mentality the entire game, you know, in the entire postseason. I don't think it's reasonable to expect that necessarily, but... You know, this is a team that when they have their mind right and they're doing what they need to do, they're unbeatable. So, you know, I think I'm not concerned about them offensively. I think the more is not, not a concern, but I think just with the way that Quinn Snyder is working with this Hawks team, you know, he's a good coach and, you know, oftentimes he's very good at making adjustments. Um you know, I'd be curious to see what the Hawks do offensively, and maybe it's not anything crazy. Maybe it's just, you know, making more shots. You know, it's a make-or-miss league, as they say. So it could just be a matter of the Hawks just need to make shots, and that's really all it is. But, you know, I think the Celtics, you know, as we said with the Bruins, it's really huge to, you know, maintain the home court advantage. And I think you got to understand that these games are huge. You know, I think especially winning a game one, you feel good. You feel like you played really good basketball for the majority of the game. You know, maybe not necessarily the second half, but, you know, I think you want to continue to come in with the same mentality of, you know, one game at a time. You don't want to look ahead. You don't want to start getting ahead of yourself. And I think, you know, these games are hard because, you know, it's, it's a, I don't say a getaway game necessarily because they'll be playing game three in Atlanta on Friday. But I think, you know, this kind of has the feeling of, I don't say a letdown game, but a game that I think the Celtics could get caught in the trap of kind of, you know, not playing as hard early on. And I think, I wouldn't be surprised if the Hawks come out come out and shoot well in the first quarter, you know, but I think the Celtics need to continue to have that that good aggressive mindset um, offensively because they think just doing what they did in the first half on Saturday, you know, is great. If they can play anywhere near that, they should have no problem winning game two. But I think, again, as I've probably harped on, a million times with this team all season long. It's all about the mindset. You know, I don't think it's talent. I don't think it's anything strategically that is holding this team back from doing anything. I really think it's themselves and their mindset, how they approach the game.
you know, we've seen this team at their best be one of the most, if not the most deep team in the league. You know, and they've been one of the best teams. They've been one of the, if not the best team in the NBA for the majority of the season. You know, yes, the Bucs are the number one seed and all that, but, you know, this is a team that I think really their most difficult opponent is themselves. You know, and I think that we saw it a lot last postseason that they, you know, turned the ball over. They had a lot of turnovers in game one, and I think, you know, they can be their own worst enemy at times, and I think it's all about the mindset with this team, and I think if they're doing the right things, playing the right way, it's a very hard, they're a very hard team to beat, and I think, you know, a lot of people, I think for one reason or another, want to point at Joe Missoula for the reasons why this team has, you know, struggled at times, but, I mean, you you have the the core group of this team, Jalen, Marcus, and Jason. They've been together. They've been through playoff runs. They've been through everything together. And I think, you know, it's really kind of on them to be the leaders of this team and, you know, forcing this team to bring the correct energy to playoff games. And I think that, yes, at a certain point, the coach does need to you know, motivate his guys, but it's just, it starts and ends with those three players. And if they have the right mindset and they're playing the way that is expected, like I can't, I really can't, I can't see another team in the league beating them. But I think really it's kind of all of a mental thing for this team. Um, So game two tonight, seven o'clock start, game three, of the best of seven will be uh, Friday night in Atlanta, and then Sunday night in Atlanta will be game four. So I think we're going to move on. We will talk a little bit more about the uh, NBA playoffs later in the pod, but I figure we will get to the Red Sox now. Who have uh, we've you know obviously missed last week, so there's not been a whole lot of time to talk uh, Red Sox after their, you know, series opening or season opening series win against the Orioles in the first series of the season. But it's kind of been pretty up and down since then. The Red Sox, you know, lose three straight to the Pirates, win three straight against the Tigers, lose four straight against the Rays, and then win three out of four against the Angels. It's kind of been a up and down type of thing where you're kind of not sure what you're going to get with this team night in and night out, which I'll be honest, it's not necessarily surprising uh, with this, you know, group of players. And I think that, yeah, I may have been overly optimistic at the start of the season, but you know, who isn't? So, you know, yeah, I know I said a lot of things that, okay, you know, they can challenge for a playoff spot they could win 90 games and you know they still can you know it's not out of the question but I do think that as far as expectation this is kind of what the expectations are for this team you know yeah some things have been good some things haven't been they've kind of been uneven Uh, but I think 
you know, for the most part, I would say offensively is things have been pretty good. Things have been pretty, you know, what we would have expected. You know, Devers has been unbelievable lately. Seven home runs, 16 RBIs in the first couple weeks of the season. Um, Adam Duvall obviously had a great start, but then broke his wrist. So he'll be, you know, out for a while, which was really too bad as he was kind of there kind of was her best offensive player uh, to that point. You know, I think that Yoshida has had some struggles, has dealt with some injury uh, lately. You know, Kike Hernandez has had issues at shortstop. You know, the Red Sox have really had issues at that position, I think health-wise, but just, you know, position, you know, playing the position-wise. So, but I think offensively, you know, Devers has been really good. Alex Verdugo has had a really good start to the season, which is good. Um, but I really think that this is a team that losing Duval you know, really hurts because this is a team that I think already was kind of thin in terms of what they can do offensively. And, you know, losing argue, who was arguably your best hitter at the time, you know, makes this team even thinner where it's like, Devers is really the only guy you can count on, and Verdugo's had a good start to the season, but he's not really a power guy, you know, he's more of kind of a, just kind of a get-on-base guy, and he's had a great start, you know, 21 hits is hitting 328, which is the best average on the Red Sox, but I think, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of showing exactly kind of what they're thought process was in the offseason where it's like okay we're counting on some guys to be better than they were last season but it's like you look at Devers and then it's like they were they're counting a lot on Yoshida which I don't know if it's necessarily fair you know I think he's a solid player but I think he needs time to adjust to American League pitching and it's like now they're asking him to be kind of that number two offensive threat where He's been all right, but I think you don't have you don't have the requisite depth to be a really good offensive team, and you know it's kind of a it's it's frustrating because it seems like you know the Red Sox were perfectly comfortable with what they did in the off season and were like okay. We'll see how it goes, but it's like, I think, as we said at the beginning of the year, it's going to be a lot of questions, and I think the questions were, you know, are certain guys going to be able to help your offense? You know, is Yoshida going to be able to be a consistent bat? Is Casas going to be able to hit for power consistently? And I think, you know, it's it's a lot to ask of those two guys in particular, I think especially when you don't have a guy like Duvall, who I think was making things easier on the offense with his ability to hit, but, you know, they got to find something else. And I think it's unfortunate that they've been hit with injuries. You know, it's unfortunate that Trevor Story's not going to be available for the first half of the season. And I think, you know, that obviously plays into the issues at shortstop. You know, I think that him not being available, you know, Mondesi not being available, with he also dealing with injury, 
you know, get to the point that Bobby Dahlbeck had to play shortstop. And I think, you know, that was the point of him playing that position in spring training so that if, you know, worst came to worst, he had to play. You know, I think that it was kind of a last resort type of thing. People kind of, I think, seem to forget that, that he was not exactly the first choice to play that position, you know, but I think offensively, again, it's just, there's too much over-reliance on Devers where, you know, it's it's hard to know what you're going to get game to game from other guys, you know, and I think that that's the biggest thing where, you know, you need to have consistent power every game, you know, and I think that unfortunately with the kind of lack of power, with the lack of, you know, offensive firepower, if you will, the Red Sox are, you know, relying a lot on the pitching, which has been kind of here, it's been kind of hit or miss. You know, I think the starting pitching has just been okay. You know, you've had some games recently where guys are getting knocked around in the first inning. You know, it happened yesterday with, you know, Bayo making his first start of the season, and he got knocked around in two and two-thirds, gave up five runs. You know, and I think... For him in particular, you know, it's one start, but I do think that it's unfortunately kind of become a pattern with this team recently that, you know, guys are getting battered around in the first couple innings and, you know, they're having to go to their bullpen. They're guys that are taxed already. You know, I think it was Whitlock pitching on, I think it was Sunday. I think it was Sunday, and they won two to one, and they won two to one. Um, yeah, and they won two to one, and you know it was like he had to pitch the seven innings, you know, because you had it was like Jansen, Schreiber, Richard Blyer, and someone else were like unavailable, so it was like he had to pitch seven innings, and you know. It was great to see that he pitched well, you know, but I think it's like you can't continue to have guys that are getting hit and hit for runs in the first couple innings because you're going to have to go to your bullpen earlier. And I think, you know, it was like, and I'm not trying to discredit Whitlock because it was a great start. It was great to see that he pitched so well, but it's like they need to be able to have guys that can consistently go into the fifth inning, go into the sixth inning. And I'm not saying every guy has to pitch, you know, a no-hitter or pitch, you know, shutout baseball, but it's like you have to pitch well enough to stay in the game. And it was like Whitlock pitching that game. It was like he's really the only guy that's had a quality start. You know, statistically, that was their first quality start of the season, which tells you a lot. So, you know, it was good to see him pitch well, but then it's like, when you are overtaxed, they had to throw Brazer and Caleb Bork out there, and they've been two of their worst relievers this season. So it's like having to throw those two guys out there in the eighth and ninth inning was not ideal. Now they got out of it, which was great, but it's just it's kind of a classic example of a team that can't score enough, is not consistent enough to drive in runs and therefore you have to rely on the pitching staff to 
you know, keep you in games. And this is not a pitching staff that is really good enough to do that. You know, it's not necessarily deep enough. You know, the Red Sox came into this season thinking that, okay, Sale's going to be back to what he was, and maybe that wasn't the best thing because clearly he's not pitched well in the beginning of the season. You know, neither is Kluber, and I think the Red Sox are kind of relying on both of those guys to kind of be the top of the rotation guys, and neither one of them have been consistent. You know, it's like, okay, you're relying on, you know, Tanner Houck and, you know, Garrett Whitlock to pitch in games and pitch well, and that can't happen. You know, for this team to be good, their whole rotation has to be good. You know, for, for, the, for them to be a competitive team, the rotation has to be solid. It can't be like this. Because it's just, they're going to hover around 500 all season. You know, if it's not going to get better in terms of the pitching. And, yeah, you know, I think in, in a lot of ways, this is kind of, in a lot of ways, this is kind of what the expectation was for this team. That they're going to kind of be a 500 team and, you know, the pitching and the hitting are going to go through you know, ebbs, ebbs and flows where they'll be good and have good stretches of play, but then they'll also have, you know, bad stretches of play where they can't beat good teams and, you know, you can only be kind of middling teams. So it was good to see the Red Sox win three out of four. You know, I think for this team to be a consistent team, you know, they have to take as many series as they possibly can and if it means taking series against bad teams or kind of middling teams, that's fine. But clearly, you know, if this team wants to be a playoff team, they have to beat good teams. And, you know, getting swept by the Rays, it's not really a good way to start that. But, you know, we'll see how they do against Minnesota this week. Uh, Three-game set against the Twins, then they will travel to Milwaukee to play the Brewers in Milwaukee. So... We'll see how they do against Minnesota, first place team in the NL or in the American League Central. Uh, Red Sox are eight and nine in fifth place with the loss yesterday, five to four to the Angels. So Chris Sale slated to pitch tonight, and then Kluber tomorrow, and then Tanner Houck pitching Thursday afternoon, and then Pavetta, Whitlock, and Bayo will be the next three. So Looks like at the moment it's a six-man rotation. I'd be kind of curious to see if someone gets put into the bullpen. You know, it feels like, you know, Hauk kind of might be the guy that gets moved there, but it's like he's pitched well. He's actually been one of the only starters that's pitched, you know, decent enough. You know, Sale and Kluber haven't been able to pitch well at all for the first couple starts of the year. So I think, you know, be curious to see how Bayo can do the rest of his outings. You know, I think first outing of the season, hard to kind of make any type of proclamation about his game. But, you know, they have to figure out how to get out of the early innings without damage because they think that is kind of what's, you know, killing them at the moment that, you know, they're getting into these big deficits and the offense, you know, is forced to have to come back. 
Now they have had some games where they've been able to come back, but you know that's not a winning formula for a team that I think really kind of needs to be a competitive team because I think if they're not and this turns into a 75 win season or worse, you know, this team needs to seriously consider, you know, making changes to the front office, um, you know, because clearly what's happening now is not working. And I think, you know, and we've talked about this, I think at length multiple times, but you know, people want to complain about Heim Bloom and the things that he's doing, and that's fine. But it's like, we have to remember that John Henry is kind of, you know, hiring someone to do exactly what it is they're good at and what Heim Bloom is good at is, you know, managing kind of a low resource, kind of not a lot of money type of team. That doesn't really describe the Red Sox. And so I think it's like, Bloom's doing exactly what it is that he's good at, but it's like, it doesn't really work here. You know, it doesn't really work here with a team that has, you know, the resources and the money that the Red Sox do, and it's like, they they aren't exactly doing the best they can to make this team as competitive as they can, you know. So I think, yeah, I think there are big changes that, could possibly happen. Uh, sorry for the dog in the background. But, uh, you know, seriously, I don't think that there's a lot that's going to change for this franchise until, you know, you bring in a general manager or someone that is going to be able to be good with the resources and, you know, build a competitive team. Because, you know, looking at this team right now, there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of, like, you know, hoping that, oh, okay, the team might may or may not be competitive, or you're hoping that the team may be competitive instead of being like, oh, okay, we're going to go in with the idea that we're going to be competitive instead of, instead of, you know, kind of making these hope moves to be like, oh, I hope that we can be a competitive team. So it'd be interesting to see how the Red Sox do the next couple of weeks, you know, some good teams they're playing. Minnesota, Milwaukee, so I think that we will move on from the Red Sox. We'll talk a little bit about the Revolution, uh, a tie over the weekend against Columbus on the road, um, a 98th minute equalizer that uh, beat, or excuse me, even the game, so the Revs, uh, you know, suffer a draw, I guess you could say, but I continue to be impressed and excited with this team um, over the first couple of weeks of the season. I think the way that offensively, the depth that they have, you know, has been huge. And I think that your best players are being your best players with, you know, Heel looking good. Dylan Barrero looks really good. And I think, you know, this is a team that week in and week out, they look really good offensively. And I think coming up with timely goals when it's necessary. And I think it's kind of exactly almost the opposite of what this team was last year, where there was very little, you know, continuity from games, especially early on. But it's like now you have guys that a lot of these guys have played in this, the, 
Mets have played eight games to this point. Most of the guys in this team have played seven or eight games. You know, Bo has missed a couple of games, but you know, Barrero and Heal have played in seven games. You know, Noel Buck has played in eight. Frioni has played in seven. You know, I think you have your attacking guys, your guys in the middle that have played some games, but I think kind of the key guys, Barrero, Heal, Bobby Wood, you know, Noel Buck, Frioni, some of those key guys, some of those key guys kind of in the attacking third have been able to play a lot of games, and I think that that's, you know, helped this team moving forward, or that has helped this team to this point in the season, that they've been able to have guys in the lineup, they've been able to score goals, they've been able to, you know, get points early on. Um, I think it's really helped this team's confidence because I think they kind of didn't have a lot of confidence, I think, for points of last season because guys were, you know, in and out of the lineup. Guys were and weren't available. But I think they've gotten, you know, something something figured out to this point. The Revs will play uh, Kansas City this weekend, 7.30 start. That's another home game, so... The Revs playing a Kansas City team that is not very good, so you hope the Revs can uh, continue their, uh, you know, solid play. The Revs will also play next week in the U.S. Open Cup game um, against Hartford. So the U.S. Open, you know, is basically a competition for teams in the United States. So kind of through the involving the different leagues. So that's what will go on next week. But the Revs will play Kansas City this weekend and then Cincinnati next weekend. Both of those or all three of these games are at Gillette before the Revs will have quite a few road games in the month of May and then into June. So I think that's probably going to do it for the Revs. We'll get over to the Patriots briefly and just touch on some things as we are, believe it or not, we are almost a week away from the NFL draft with the draft taking place at the end of next week. Um, so, you know, I think obviously a lot of players the Patriots have visited with, I think, top 30 visits. So, you know, guys that the Patriots could look at in the first or second round, you know, I feel, still think that there are a million different directions the Patriots can go. It always kind of seems like that for this team that, you know, you're always thinking you have an idea of what direction this team is going to go and they kind of go the opposite way. Um, or they kind of go away you're not expecting. So, you know, I think one thing is for sure, though, I do like the kind of change. I don't want to say change, but I think that the last couple of years they've gotten better at, I think, identifying talents um, that can start for you right away. Patriots, you know, obviously, as we've talked about at length, the number of guys last year that contributed as rookies, you know, they drafted, there's like nine or 10 guys and like seven of them made legitimate contributions 
to the team. And so I think looking for guys that are kind of pro-ready or ready to perform you know, right away is huge. And I think you want to continue to do that for the guys that you bring in. And I think Matt Groh and the player development, you know, player personnel, scouting and all that have done a good job over the last couple of years. Um, and so I think you kind of look for that to continue to happen this year. So I think, you know, in terms of looking at kind of the big needs, you know, I think offensive line is still kind of the number one thing for me. You know, I think cornerback is certainly a need as well. Wide receiver, you know, defensive end perhaps. You know, I think that there are a lot of a lot of spots that the Patriots can choose to address. Um, you know, my personal opinion is they look at cornerback in the first round, you know, look at someone like a Christian Gonzalez out of Oregon or Joey Porter Jr. out of Penn State. You know, I think it's a lot of like guesswork about guys, be your guys may or may not be being available at 14. You know, I think a lot of these guys, the Patriots have looked at, you know, kind of don't know if they're going to be there at 14. And I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see, especially if the Patriots trade back with that first round pick. Does that mean that someone that they wanted got picked? You know, it'll be kind of interesting to see. But I do think that the positions that I mentioned are kind of the main positions of need, if you will. But I don't necessarily think that all of those positions are like first round, 14th overall needs. You know, I think in particular wide receiver, you know, I think they could very easily find a good fit in the second round or perhaps even a day three pick. Um, but I think in terms of day one, I think that, you know, cornerback might be the most likely spot that they look at. Um, you know, offensive line, I think they could look at on day two or, or day three. So it will be interesting to see just some other Patriot news, uh, some nominees for the Patriots Hall of Fame for 2023, Bill Parcells, Logan Mankins, and Mike Vrabel. The Patriots had um, day one of spring workouts yesterday, so guys have reported to, uh, you know, spring workouts, as that usually happens right before the draft. Um, then there'll be, I think, OTAs in May, I believe. May or June, I think, is usually when they take place. Uh, Patriots also gave restricted free agent Miles Bryant a one-year deal. Um, so he's been with the organization since 2020, has spent time on the practice squad and on the active roster. Uh, did some punt returning last year. It's been a safety and a corner. So, you know, I think good to have some depth at that spot. Um, I would not be surprised, though, if the Patriots are looking to, you know, add some more bodies at that cornerback position, possibly a first-round pick. Um, so I think that's probably going to do it. I think we're going to take a look around some notes from the NFL. Um, first and foremost, I think, from the NFL, obviously, the big news yesterday 
Jalen Hurts and the Eagles coming to terms on a big money contract extension. Five years, $255 million, 180 guaranteed, making Hurts the highest paid player in the NFL. So, you know, interesting the Eagles get that done. I think that going to be interesting to see who else from that draft class comes through with, with a new contract. You know, Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, possibly Tua. You know, I think those three guys kind of maybe next in line for those big um, extensions. I'd be curious to see what happens there, how that affects possibly the Lamar Jackson situation. It'll be interesting to see. There's also a new group involving Magic Johnson that has submitted a bid to buy the Washington Commanders. Uh, Patrick Mahomes said that he is still rehabbing his ankle injury from the playoffs. And, yeah, obviously draft coming up. Uh, I think it's 10 days, if I have that date correctly. That's the 27th, so it's nine days from now. So the first round is Thursday, next Thursday, second and third round Friday, and then the rest of it Saturday. So it'll be interesting to see what we see there. Um, move on, talk a little bit about the MLB. You know, we'll get more into the draft, I think, next week as we get kind of days before it. So we're going to do Major League Baseball and early exit for uh, Jacob deGrom of the Rangers with a sore wrist. And uh, Shohei Otani made, a, made his Fenway Park start uh, yesterday, but was delayed by some of the rain. So it was unfortunate we didn't get to see him pitch more yesterday. Um, and then Fernando Tatis will be returning to the Padres with his suspension um, up, or his suspension ending on Thursday. So he will be back in the lineup for the Padres then. So we'll take a quick look at the standings. Obviously, the Rays have gotten off to a record start. They won their first, I think it won their first 11 or 12 games, um, but they lead the AL East. They are 14-3 and three with a three-and-a-half game lead over the Yankees. Red Sox in last at 8-9, and nine, six games out of first place. In the American League Central, the Twins leading the pace at 10-6. and six. Red Sox will start a three-game series with them this week. And the Rangers in first in the West at 10-6, two-game lead over the Angels. In the National League, the Braves are off to a good start. They are 13-4. Same thing for the Brewers in the, uh, in the National League Central. They are 12-5. Um, the Arizona Diamondbacks, the surprising first-place team in the National League West, they are at 10-7. So I think we're going to go to talking about the playoffs. I think we'll do some NBA first. Obviously, Celtics-Hawks tonight at 7 the Knicks and Cavs will play game two in Cleveland tonight at 7.30. And then the Clippers and Phoenix will renew 
their series game two tonight at 10 o'clock. So the Knicks um, and the Clippers both winning road games um, in game one of their series, a big opportunity for them to possibly take a 2-0 series lead in their respective series. The games last night, obviously a couple games, Philadelphia using a big second half to take a 2-0 series lead over the Nets. So a big win for the Sixers, big win for the Kings last night. They have won their first two playoff games of their series against the Warriors. 114-106 was the score last night. Draymond Green uh, ejected for uh, stomping on Demontis Sabonis, and you've, I'm sure, seen a lot on social media today about the reaction to that, which, um, I don't know, it's just, uh, it's kind of just the stuff that Draymond does, unfortunately, where it's like, yes, I understand the type of game that he has to play the line that he has to toe, but it's like, you can't be stomping on players. And it's like, at the same time, I understand Zabona's kind of grabbing his leg and pulling on it or whatever he was doing. For sure, that's a dangerous play, but it's like stomping on someone's chest is also dangerous. So it's like people being surprised that he was ejected was kind of wild to me because it's like, it's a, it's a hostile act. Like it's intent to injury. It's kind of like, well, duh, he was ejected. So it'll be interesting to see if he gets suspended. Um, but, you know, more importantly, the Kings taking a huge lead in the series, 2-0 over the Warriors. But I'll be honest, it's not something that I think the Warriors are, like, out of because they've been a tremendous home team. They've been one of the worst road teams in recent memory, you know, they won, they won 11 games on the road this season. So it's not terribly surprising, but I think until they lose a home game, I don't think I'm going to be concerned about them as a team. Um, but good stuff for the Kings. They've been really fun to watch. You know, that crowd in Sacramento has been really fun to watch as well. So let's just take a look at some other um, NBA thoughts or NBA notes, I should say, the Grizzlies. Jaron Jackson Jr. won Defensive Player of the Year yesterday. That was announced. Um, and some injuries, the Grizzlies are thinking that John Moran may be in jeopardy for Game 2 of their series against the Lakers. I believe that's tomorrow. Um, and then Giannis's MRI came back clean after his fall, and the Bucks are optimistic about his status Game Game 2 of that series. I believe is also tomorrow night. So we're going to move over to the NHL. Playoffs obviously started last night with a couple of games. Bruins obviously with the win over Florida. And then Carolina gets the win in their game one against the Islanders. They've won two to one. And then also, last night later, you had Minnesota and Dallas going to double overtime. Minnesota getting the win on the road, and then the Kings beating the Oilers in overtime 4-3. to Kings rallying from a 3-1 deficit in the third period to come back to wins. Both of those teams 
taking away the home ice advantage. So very interesting start to the playoffs. Um, and then we'll take a look at the games tonight, all game ones. Rangers and the Devils at 7, Lightning and Maple Leafs at 7.30, Winnipeg and Vegas at 9.30, and then Seattle and Colorado at 10. So just before we go, I would like to make kind of a, a special uh, well-wishing to people that uh, ran the Boston Marathon yesterday. It was a fun experience to go out and watch. Uh, we braved it through a little bit of the rain, but uh, always a really fun experience to go witness that. So uh, congratulations to everyone that finished the race yesterday. Uh, it was a really fun uh, experience going out to watch. So uh, Zidane Chara was among one of the runners, as you may or may not have heard. So that was cool to see him cross the finish line in some videos that we saw on social media. So. Um, I think that's going to do it for me this week, a little shorter than usual, but, you know, good to be back with you folks, and we'll be back guest Friday later this week with a Celtics guest. We'll kind of talk about the beginning part of the Celtics-Hawks series, so Celtics-Hawks tonight, game two, and we will uh, talk to you later this week.